Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Lewingdon. Dan is the current head of performance science and medicine for the LTA, the national governing body of tennis in the UK. Prior to working in tennis, Daniel worked for 13 years in professional rugby, seven of which was as the senior team physiotherapist for England Rugby where he was responsible for player recovery, injury prevention and rehabilitation. Dan holds postgraduate master's degrees in both sports medicine and exercise science, and he is the co-editor and contributing author of two internationally best-selling textbooks, High Performance Training for Sports and Sports Injury Prevention and Rehabilitation. In this episode with Dan, we'll be speaking about career development, technical development, and also his latest book that he co-edited with David Joyce. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyses them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Annie McDonald, and here is today's guest, Dan Lewingdon. Dan, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. It's taken a while to get this one um, sorted, isn't it? But yeah, good good to chat. You've been a very busy man from from the look of the uh, book industry at the moment. So um, just to uh, kick off, would you be able to outline your uh, your kind of career background and bring us through to the current day, just just in case somebody hasn't heard of you before? <laughs> I'm sure that's the case. Uh, I guess my current role is Head of Performance Science and Medicine at the LTA, which is the governing body for tennis in the UK. Um, so the role now, I guess, is leadership management of um, a team of sports science and medical staff across our pathway. Uh, My background is as a physiotherapist, so previously worked in rugby for a long, long time, both at club level with Northampton Saints and at international level with England Rugby for seven years or so um, across a number of uh, coaching and and kind of um, support groups. Um, And I guess during my time within rugby, developed a real interest in rehabilitation, end-stage rehabilitation and the kind of synergy between physio and S&C. And as a result, did some did some um, postgraduate studies in that space, which um, helped me in current role, but also, I guess, um, shone a light onto other complementary areas with, within my space that I needed to develop. So for, you know, for a lot of people, they can kind of progress into leadership roles from their, you know, their kind of technical fundamental role kind of organically. Was was going into leadership something that you aspired to go into kind of early on or was it something that kind of flowed naturally from you know having done a decent sort of spell in physio um I think I mean I guess in terms of my own journey I was 13 years in rugby um as a physiotherapist at you know club international level as I said and I think I got to a point even with the postgraduate work I did at S&C in exercise science where there is a natural ceiling to your level of influence, um, and it was brilliant. Don't get me wrong; I loved loved every day that I spent working in <clears throat> in that sport and in those environments. But I think I got to a point, from a personal and professional perspective, where I, I wanted to have more influence um, across departments and domains. Um, and I think naturally, then that led to the opportunity that I was able to take up with with tennis. 
um i think to to say that i kind of i guess fell into it as a natural um, extension of where i've been possibly so i think inevitably you know as we all know once you start having kids and your your personal priorities change that changes your willingness and ability perhaps to um to travel and work at the coal face in the same way but i think primarily for me it was about having influence across sports science and medicine um and starting to kind of influence i guess the the, the coaching space a little bit more yeah no good stuff I've, it's always interesting to hear why people go into their into their roles especially when it you know it makes a a progression or a pivot so no thank you for that um just to kick off mate could, i know you've got a, a new book out which you very kindly sent me um and i know you've got previous books as well would you be able to um give some background information on i guess the books that you've put together and then also what the current and new book is sure so i guess um the, the book that um, i sent through to you is the second edition of our high performance training for sports book which um myself and a guy called david joyce um, put together originally actually the edition one was in 2013 i want to say give or take um, and ultimately, that is a sports performance textbook where we try to bring together 50 or 60 of the best authors across the world, uh, real kind of genuine experts in their in their domains to provide really practical and experiential information regarding the kind of key areas of high performance training. Um, fundamentally, the, the book in its first edition was about delivering a resource that supported development of integrated mindset to performance. I think it was... The, the idea came to us around 2010 and 11 um, over a couple of beers when it was at that point in, in high performance sport where there were established medical teams and S&C teams. But you could see the gap in terms of integrating um, allied health professionals with S&C, with nutrition into a kind of integrated performance space. Um, and that drove a lot of our intent around writing the original book. Um, which which went really well and was was really successful. We were you know, really thrilled with it, um, and as a result, um, we were offered the opportunity to to do a second edition of the same book, which is the book you've now hopefully got in your hands. Uh, which again was I guess was driven by popularity of the book, but equally for us a bit of an acknowledgement that the world had turned over again several times, and then there were probably some new topics and stories that we wanted to introduce into the book now. Um, to reflect, I guess, the, the changing face of performance sport, um, which I can delve into in a little bit more detail. But ultimately, I guess, for me specifically, that was much more around the kind of coach and athlete interface, you know, the, creating the conditions for, for learning, understanding optimal environments for kind of developing athletes, uh, understanding some of the broader drivers of adaptation, and thinking about things like behaviour, influence, and language and well-being. Um, in much more detail, much more about the how of how you deliver high quality support. Um, whereas the first edition, as I say, was much more around the integration of science and medicine uh, into the key topics that were, were important at the time. Um, the second book that Dave and I also did um, was more around performance rehabilitation, which was uh, released a couple of years after the first book um, through Routledge, which again, a lot of the mindset was around integrating domain specific expertise into a kind of integrated approach towards rehabilitation and um, more medically biased sports performance. 
Got you. And, you know, you mentioned the world's kind of changed a little bit, especially in recent times. How did you decide for this edition, based on the kind of current sporting landscape, which, you know, which topics would be the most important or the most kind of key ones currently as the sort of current trends or the industry operates in its current sort of sense? Yeah, so I guess on, on one level, we were we were both a bit, well, me particularly, a bit reticent about doing the second edition um, because the first edition had gone so well. And you're always you, you're kind of putting yourself back out there, aren't you? I guess. Um, and so for us, one of the drivers was to make sure that we put different voices into similar topics to give fresh perspectives on um, key areas. Um, I think behind that, some of it perhaps reflects our own journey. As I said, for the first edition, it was at that precipice where um, integrated performance support was becoming a reality. Whereas I think now, a little bit older and longer in the tooth. It's a reflection that you can know as much as you want, but it's, it's ultimately how you deliver that information and how you influence the kind of coaches and players and practitioners around you to create the outcomes that you need. Um, so I think it reflects to a greater degree our, our journey as individuals. Um, I think there's obviously key topics in there in terms of things like well-being, which, you know, in, in light of COVID, but in light of life itself, um, it's becoming much more of a familiar and talked about topic. So we wanted to reflect some of the modern day challenges that um, athletes and coaches and practitioners have. Yeah. Um, and I guess I, you know, I've not written a book myself, but I can imagine that you could let a project easily run away from you if you try to put too many things into it how how did you kind of narrow i'm just curious as somebody who does you know i guess with a podcast content creation how did you how hard was it to narrow down uh and, and make certain topics more key to feature in the book versus you know trimming some that maybe didn't make the cut oh really hard i mean i think um with the first edition joyce and i spent a lot of time carefully considering the flow of the book and, and how you structure it so that it um it tells a story of itself i mean inevitably as joyce would always say that this book could ultimately be one one chapter rather than 30 odd because it is all blended together but i think carefully taking the time to think about at a macro level what's the story we want to tell here how do we organize the book to do that and then thinking i guess around from our own perspectives and probably on discussions with people that you know we value in this space what are the key topics and areas of performance support and sport that make the biggest difference um then drives the kind of chapters that you go for and then i think we're both really lucky that we've got a very wide network in terms of practitioners and people across the globe um and a lot of the work then became obviously hunting those people down and persuading them to kind of do this for us with um very little financial reward um, and a whole lot of headache. Um, so, yeah, I think in summary, not easy. Um, and herding really, really busy cats is, uh, is not for the faint hearted. Uh, but that said, as, as, as you kind of, as we chatted about before, as a, as a CPD exercise for Dave and I, you know, to, to step into the minds of these people for an extended period and work with them on some stuff is gold for, you know, for us in terms of how much you get out of it. And it's absolutely, it was absolutely worth the kind of pain and time it took. Um, I think if someone even mentioned a third edition, I'm not sure what we'd say, but uh, at the time, yeah, definitely worth the effort. I feel like sometimes when I speak to people in our industry that have 
put together books. Some of them are energized by the process and keen to do another one. And some of them uh, want to stay away from books and writing uh, for a while. I was going to ask you what's next, but uh, we won't we won't go into the third edition conversation just yet. Um, is, is there anything, you know, specific that you really wanted to get in this book, but it just, you know, it would have become too big or you would have, it would have led down too big a, uh, you know, a rabbit hole if you'd done so? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, re- reflecting on my own journey, where I was in the first edition, which was around, again, in- integration of sports science and medicine. Um, and the second edition, which was more around, I guess, the how and the, and the influencing piece. The, the next evolution that I guess I'm on and, and Dave's on as well in a different way is definitely around kind of culture, I guess. Um, and if we were going to look at a third edition or if we were going to think about what else could have gone into this one, but it would have made it too, too big. There's definitely a piece around organizational culture and behaviors um which again probably reflects some of the challenges that we have globally now in sports um which you know i I believe probably means this is becoming even more important as we move forward yeah i'm going to take a little bit of a a pivot with you um away from the book if you don't mind you you know you've obviously got a very strong technical background uh, prior to now working more strategically in a leadership role um, and, you know, putting together a book with David and the contributing authors, as you mentioned, you know, would have further sharpened your knowledge and, and you get a lot of gold from doing that. Um, now you're further along your career path and working in leadership, you know, when you're working with other members of staff who are still in their technical roles, how do you kind of help advise them or help them map out their technical development in their, in their key role that they're in now? Sure. Um, great, great question. I think for me, um, it probably already always starts with making sure that they have a plan. So they need to have a really clear plan in mind regarding either what area they feel they need to develop. And that could be technical. It could be around relationships. It could be around influence. Um, it could be around some of the broader kind of knowledge base out with their own technical domain um, and how that could impact their delivery day to day. could be about their next role and where they see themselves in, in one, three or five years time. Um, or the kind of environment that they want to work in. So having a really clear kind of mission almost, I think, is important and certainly helped me in the past as well. Um, And then I think behind that, you really need to understand your reality. So um, what what are the gaps currently at the technical level, at relationship level, in terms of how they're seen or observed by by practitioners or by athletes, etc. And then considering how those gaps can be best filled. So Inevitably, there's there's formal education opportunities, there's experiential opportunities, there's a kind of blend of the two, which is probably the way that um, everyone tends to go. Um, and then there's opportunities out with of your own context, so out with of the sport that you're in, looking outside of that to other sports, other people, other domains um, where best practice is is available. Um, so I think that that's really important. I think for me as well, you know, if, if you really want to invest in yourself and develop yourself, you have to follow your interests. They have to be relevant either to the context of the role or where you see your role developing or where you see yourself developing. Uh, you've got to be interested in it. Otherwise, to to make those hard yards and to really invest in your development will be a stretch and a challenge, um, particularly when there's competing demands on your time. Um, and I think the last thing that I encourage people to do um, and I encourage myself to look ahead. You know, there's, there's no doubt the world is changing. 
um, in, for lots of reasons. And I think the opportunities that will be out there within sports science and medicine in the future may well be quite significantly different to how they currently are. Um, so I think thinking ahead about, again, where you see yourself, what kind of environment, what kind of role, but then what kind of skills and qualities are really going to be needed to execute that well is important. Um, at a kind of micro level, you know, with, with my own direct reports and the people I'm working with, clearly there's an appraisal of um, their technical skills and qualities within the context of the role that they're in. But I guess for me, uh, in terms of the way I approach leadership, it's as much about their personal journey out with of the role they're currently in as it is the role that they are currently in. Yeah, got you. And, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, how would you, you know, encourage, a, say, a young, a, long, a young clinician or listener out there who might be listening to this? How would you encourage them to structure or, I guess, to borrow terminology, periodize their technical development? And I guess the reason I ask this is, I think earlier on in my career, for me, I, there's endless stuff you can know, and I, whether you're an SNC, sports scientist, physio, um, how do you kind of encourage people to pace their learning and development? Because I guess in absolute terms, you could go after your weaknesses or you could go after your interests, but you, you probably need to go after both at different times. Um, how do you kind of pace that or how do you encourage someone to pace their education and development? That's a great question. I mean, I think um, if I put it into the context of my own journey, much you know, similar to yourself, um, the first probably the first 10 years of my development in role as a physio working in sport was definitely about understanding as much of stuff as I could um, be that specific to I don't know manual therapy techniques that I was delivering or the, the physiology of injury pathophysiology of injury um, understanding uh, I guess injury mechanics etc 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 just accumulating a wealth of knowledge of stuff um, and over time I, I came to realize the the role that other practitioners within that integrated space played and as a result my interest started to spread into um, sports science and conditioning or nutrition or to a degree to a kind of really clumsy degree psychology um, to expand the quality of what I could deliver day to day and then as I say beyond that it becomes around influencing people and behaviors etc I mean I think if I'm giving advice to someone now who's starting out inevitably you're probably starting out you know in, in a vocational setting so either you're a physiotherapist you're an S&C coach and you'll be working in the context of your environment so you'll be hired by a sports team or within a, a practice to deliver a service and I think inevitably as you say pacing yourself is key so understanding where you really want to be in, in one year three and five years um, and understanding the gaps and understanding what qualities and skills are required there but probably pacing yourself to just start by developing the skills in the domain that you are in, but recognising over time that the more you can tag on to that in terms of wider sport context experience, that is going to add value to your ability to be able to deliver. Um, the whole thing about, yeah, looking at your weaknesses versus um, this kind of enhancing your strengths piece. I think ultimately to, to be successful in, in high-performance sport, you need to be aware, you need to be very aware of your weaknesses. You need to understand what you're able to deliver to a high level. And where you can't, you either need to understand how to work with people who can deliver those elements really, really well um, and collaborate and communicate with them in that way. 
or you do need to invest some time, effort and energy in upskilling yourself in those spaces. I think, again, a lot of it depends on the, the context of the role you're in and your aspirations for where you want to go. It's quite a vague answer to that. Um, I think, as you say, pacing yourself is key. So for me, again, taking it back, first three three years or so of my journey was all experiential learning, you know, in, in context of physio. It then became around enhancing sports science um, or sports medicine specific skills with some postgraduate work. It then became around enhancing my kind of rehabilitation or S&C skills with an S&C um, postgraduate piece of work. And it just kind of, it grew from there. Um, and I'm now 20 years into um, high performance sport. Um, obviously, as you say, transitioned into a leadership space, but equally um, continuing to kind of plot and plan my development year on year. It's, I think it's a, it's a frustrating but a, uh, <laughs> an interesting field because you never quite know enough because things are always changing. And even if things didn't change, there's still such a huge body of knowledge that you could try to soak up that uh, uh, may be useful immediately or may come to be useful in the future. I think especially in sports medicine. But I think it's a it's a hard process to pace because you can go really into the weeds and dive into one specific injury or you know training or wellness kind of philosophy and then zoom out of it and then it's just one little you know spec compared to the the, the broadness of the field i think it's it's quite hard to just sort of zoom out sometimes and uh <laughs> well it's hard to it's hard to zoom in and go into depth on certain things then it's equally hard to zoom out and see where that fits into the big picture um yeah. that's well, at least that's what i found uh, in, in my own journey yeah definitely and i guess you know that that talks to the whole the the paradox of generalist or specialist in terms of where you take yourself over a period of time. Um, and I guess, you know, from my perspective, if you look at the landscape of performance sport currently, partly because of economic factors, but also, I guess, as you say, reflecting the, the sheer breadth that practitioners need to have to successfully navigate what is, you know, a complex space of sports performance, generalism um, trumps specialism currently. Um, I, I, I feel, but ultimately there's definitely a place for both. You know, there's definitely a place for high quality generalists who understand all areas of sports performance support, um, and to a lesser degree, you know, coaching. Um, and then there are those who have that deep kind of specific understanding of a, a key driver of performance, um, and can therefore have massive value at the right time around a key area. Um, and a lot of this is driven by the context of the sport and, you know, the economics of the sport and, and the requirements of the sport. Um, but I think for me, I mean, I guess if we if we go on to that, that paradox a little bit more, there is something here around um, the breadth and depth of knowledge that you have needs to reflect your working context. So, you know, good question to ask is the way I work in role currently am i able to operate as a successful cog in a really kind of high functioning machine can i have the right conversations with my peers as a nutritionist a, a coach an snc coach um understand their priorities and their perspectives and as a result deliver within my role you know yes or no um will deepening my expertise in this area lead to a better outcome either for a patient or an athlete you know through really diving into a knowledge of x whatever x might be yeah, it's tricky, and it's um, yeah, I, I fall in and out of that as well. Over over my career, I've kind of 
started in sport and been in the department where strength and conditioning coaches were functioning as sports scientists because there wasn't sports scientists. And then there was uh, physios in terms of, and, and then very, very occasional part-time nutrition um, versus I think I've seen a trend over, over my time where performance staffs in team sports especially have really expanded and you've got more professionals and more interdisciplinary members in the process. Um, and now we've obviously just gone through COVID and there'll be some sports whose budgets are, um, are maybe hurting a bit more than they were a few years ago. Have you seen a, a, a difference or a, a changing trend for maybe whether teams need or are looking for, you know, better generalists or better uh, specialists, if we use kind of those absolute terms? Um, I wouldn't say it's, it's I wouldn't say it's fallen off the map, but I would I would say as you described that um, post COVID economics has driven um, a reduction sometimes in performance support staff load at clubs and in organisations, um, and I think there's you know if you compare when I started I hate this I sound like my dad when I started kind of in sports performance let's say in two thousand and two. Um, working at club level in rugby, I think there was two physios, uh, a doctor who was in for match days, and one S and C coach um, operating across, you know, a playing structure of 45, let's say, give or take. And I think if you then fast forward five to six years, six to seven years, like you say, you're dealing with, you know, a staffing list of a full-time nutritionist, a psychologist, um, performance lifestyle coach, you know, on and on and on, and it, and it did definitely explode. Um, did it become too heavy in that space? Potentially in some contexts. And I think a lot of that is, is again, driven by how many conversations are being had with the athlete. Um, I think if, if that integrated support is organized in such a way that conversations are funneled and streamlined and, um, nutted out before the right person is delivering the right message to the, to the athlete, it can be absolutely fine. I think when, when you've got, 12 to 15 different ologies and practitioners um, trying to engage with players for the right reasons that can become really quite noisy um, and it may well be that some of the changes is driven by a little bit of that as well I think in terms of the sweet spot again this depends completely on the context of the sport and how much let's say nutritional specialism is needed in sport x versus a, a more generalist physio who can deliver conditioning sessions. Um, I think that people will be more tactical now about what, what are the requirements of this sport, this team, that individual, um, rather than necessarily collecting people. Yeah. And I think like, I think sport, uh, in the UK is changing quite quickly at the moment. I think, uh, in a sense, becoming a little bit more Americanized in the sense of, um, private training facilities, players starting to have their own people a little bit more often, which is definitely, uh, it's not common in America, but it's definitely a, a thing, especially for very high profile uh, players and athletes. As a, you know, as somebody that sits in the at the leadership end, how do you kind of keep a handle on lots of different ologies or potentially uh, consultants, specialists, um, you know, extra staff who might be working with an individual? How do you, how do you stay organized and keep things running smoothly when there's a lot of different stakeholders involved yes it's a a massive challenge and there's no doubt as you say within the uk um, we are following a trend from the states in that space i think within within football that may well have been established for quite some time 
um, but certainly towards the end of my work within rugby, it was becoming a reality as well. And I think, as you say, it's it's a product of, um, I guess, the the, the salaries and, and well, relative wealth of the individuals involved in the sport. It's partly a product, I guess, of, of the changing kind of face of technology and, and how available athletes now are um, socially, you know, in terms of social media to um, to practitioners. Um, I think in terms of managing it, it is tricky. I made some pretty massive mistakes early on in my career when I was kind of um, exposed to this because inevitably you get your nose put out a joint that this this athlete who's on you know part of your team is choosing to operate somewhere else with someone else um, and I guess from a personal perspective I had to spend some time getting out of my own way and understanding the kind of rationale for um, for athletes choosing to do this I think then once I'd got past that and, and certainly operating the role I'm in now, ultimately it's about creating the conditions for the, you know, for the athlete, the, the best conditions possible. I mean, working in tennis, which is an individual sport, um, frequently players will work part in, in collaboration with the LTA, the, 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 um, the organization I work for, and partly they'll have in the independent individual practitioners working with them as well. And I think the, the key here is to make sure that you know, the, the player has a clear set of goals which they're working towards. Um, there's a clear understanding of who's responsible for what and how those people are going to communicate to the kind of benefit of the athlete. Um, and certainly in the context I'm working in now, that's that's the bit to hold the um, hold the tension in. Um, players choose to work with independent people or as part of a kind of organisation such as mine, but it is around the quality um, and frequency of the, the communication and collaboration these people have. And ultimately, whether that's in the best interests of, of the player and, and the players making the um, the developments they need to to continue on the path that they're on. I think my role, some of my role now is around stepping into that space where either the noise of that system is too great um, or for whatever reason, component parts of that support aren't leading to player development the way that they should. How how much have you had to go into the weeds of looking at kind of effective communication systems with, with that in mind? Because I feel like um, communication can mean nothing and it can mean everything, can't it? It's quite a um, – everyone understands what the word communication means, but whether you're reacting to communication events or being proactive because you've got a strategized system of quite different things, um, have you kind of had to go into – you know any any key readings or uh, courses or have you had you know interesting conversations with people to get advice on how you implement a good strategy uh if i'm honest the majority of this space has been trial by fire yeah um, and i'm not sitting here now saying that i've nailed that it's um it is a constant area of challenge and focus for me in my role um and it's and that's because of lots of things i mean it Tennis is a great example to have this this conversation about because, again, as I say, it's uh, an individualised sport. We operate in the UK in a decentralised manner. Therefore, our players can choose to be based at our National Tennis Centre or not. They can choose to work with our practitioners or their own practitioners. Um, and ultimately, behind that, we have a funding structure of, or funded or non-funded structure of support for them, which is geared around their individual development plan. Um, and as a result, you've got individual personalities as athletes who have different perspectives, um, different priorities. You have an international roster of coaches, all of whom again have their own philosophies and perspectives on what good quality uh, 
performance support looks like. Um, and then you've kind of got independent practitioners um, who are trying to make a living out of working with these with these players and people who work within within my kind of uh, group at the LTA. Um, and it creates the conditions for a very noisy system, uh, a lot of push and pull um, and a lot of unease. And I think there's nothing that I've read around this particularly other than the kind of normal uh, leadership and management books and podcasts, etc., that are out there. I think it's for me, it's been about a constant process of piloting um, and then reviewing success or not and moving on. Um, and even this week, I'll be having similar conversations about how we organise ourselves around players. Every time we st- change staff at the LTA or, or there's a change of practitioner working with that individual, the process goes through another cycle. Um, and I think the, the one thing you learn in this space is that there's no right answer. There is no structure. Um, there are there are frameworks to consider around, again, minimising noise to the athlete and disturbance to the athlete ensuring that there's the right frequency and quality of communication and there's a space for people to speak um, fearlessly in a, in a forum to kind of discuss their views um, and there's a clear action plan that comes out the back of this. Um, but other than that, it is a case of trial by fire. Yeah, I feel like um, other parts of what we do are a little bit more finite, like selecting you know, maybe you're monitoring metrics or certain program design variables where you can research it, plan it, and then you can select key dates or timeframes that you're going to revisit those things and um, appraise them versus, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, if this is a, a, a fair interpretation of what you're saying, communication is more of a, fl- a kind of constant fluid component of what we do. And it's more about thoughtfulness than sort of, uh, you know, a, a black and white strategy that you can impose. Absolutely, it is. It's it's far it's far more fluid and and complex, and is and is reliant, I guess, on the cohesion of ultimately individuals, um, all of whom have their own experiences, perspectives, and expertise, uh, and viewpoints around matters. Um, and it's yeah, it's a it's a challenging space. It's a brilliant space when you, when you get it right, it's fantastic. When you get it wrong, it can be um, catastrophic. So it's um it's definitely an important space to get right. Yeah, and I, I mean, we had uh, Jesse Wright on recently, who's uh, worked widely across the NBA over in the States near me. And uh, I, when I was talking to him, we were kind of saying that communication, I think, is now uh, in an industry specific way for us now becoming a bigger part of the conversation. Um, you know, with like your Brett Bartholomew's, your Nick Winkleman's, Jesse Wright, lots of Dan, Dan Howes. You know, there's a lot of people, I think, now that are sort of leading the charge and uh, discussing soft skills and communication uh a lot more maybe than previously versus you know i think a bit like you said your early career was where you're looking for knowledge i think for a long time the industry content has been focused more on kind of technical knowledge than than the comms uh comm side of it um obviously you've, you've got a good technical background you're doing well in leadership where do you now turn personally to kind of you know i guess upskill yourself what 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 do you strategize to shape your own thoughts um so i guess I'm really fortunate in the role that I've got that it is, um, as I've kind of loosely described, qu- quite a complex leadership and management space. Um, and as a result, day to day, you know, I feel very fortunate that I'm always learning in terms of the interactions I have with people. And again, the communication frameworks that I put in or the, the kind of reviews and processes that we, we put in place and how effective they are. Um, I think from a, a personal kind of learning perspective, 
I, I try to weed, weed. I try to read quite uh, widely now. Um, there's obviously a wealth of books in terms of self-awareness and self-understanding, which um, have been very impactful for me in that journey, kind of transition from practitioner to leader. Um, I'm really interested in reading about, say, culture and behaviour. Um, at the minute, I'm reading um, Owen Eastwood's book on uh, belonging, which if, if you've not read it, to, to plug another book or, or um, audio book is an absolutely outstanding book, which, again, is around ultimately creating the conditions and the culture um, for success and sustainability, which, again, in the world we live in now in sport, I think is ever more important. Um, and I guess I spend a lot of time and I'm fortunate to spend a lot of time in my role with with a lot of expertise around me in terms of the, the technical qualities that my team have, the coaches that we have at the LTA, um, the kind of operators we have there. So I guess I'm, I'm learning on the ground day to day as well. Um, I always like to have a plan in terms of what's next for me. Always had the plan to work for England Rugby and kind of set my all of my technical and personal development about achieving that outcome. Um, always thereafter wants to work in this kind of leadership space. I guess I'm now in a, in a position where I'm considering carefully what is next for me. Um, is, is it a step upward into something different? Is it a step laterally? Um, and then probably pegging back how I organise myself to that once I have it. Um, do you ever go hands-on? Do you ever do any any physio still? Do you ever get dragged into the into the medical room or, or treat anybody, uh, friends and family? Do you ever miss it? Uh, I do a bit. So at the LTA, every now and again, I've, I've done a bit to help. I'm really guarded against um, doing very much of it because it sets the wrong um, example for kind of, or, or potentially sets the wrong example for the team in terms of my role, in terms of uh, what I'm there to do. Um, I do a little bit of consultancy work at home. Perhaps, you know, one athlete might see me once a month, something of that level. Uh, do I miss it? No, I really enjoy um, having discussions and debates around rehabilitation and, you know, training methodologies. Uh, but in terms of getting stuck in, I feel like I did quite a lot of that for a long time. So I've not, I've not missed it yet. No. Yeah, I mean, rugby's a good sport to stay busy if you're a physio. I think uh, I don't think anyone's ever going to be out of a job uh, <laughs> as a physio, yeah. as a sport. Um, where's the best place for people to to find the current book or the previous books as well? Uh, God, that's a really good question. I should be better prepped for these things. Um, <laughs> Amazon's Amazon's a good place to go. Yeah, so obviously it's globally available now. So I think your your local Amazon shop will um, will have it. It's, it's published by Human Kinetics, so obviously directly on their website is another another avenue. But it should be in all high quality good bookshops um, across the globe. Cool. And I'm just aware of time. Where's the best place for people to follow you or kind of keep up to date with what you've got going on? You know, maybe in the future that third edition. <laughs> oh God! Uh, Twitter <laughs> at Dan Lewenden is always a good place. Um, Always happy to receive emails and, and tweets and stuff. So, um, yeah, get hold of me that way. My email is uh, dan at me.com. Cool. Well, mate, thank you. Thank you very much. I, you know, in my, a few years back, I purchased and read your, um, the other two books that you've got. And they're genuinely books that whenever any starting physio reaches out to me and says, you know, what's a good place for me to look at S&C stuff or um, what, you know, what's some good books. They're, they're genuinely books that I still read regularly and, and refer to. So, um yeah i've been enjoying reading the current book thank you for that and yeah it's been a pleasure to have you on mate my pleasure been good